Okay, Jesse, last week's Hampton murder was just in time for summer. What are we doing this week? When a rookie FBI agent gets involved with a small Kentucky coal town girl while busting bank robbers and drug rings, it spells disaster for all involved. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about awful affairs, lascivious lovers, and fits of rage that change lives. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. We also love, 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 love reading your reviews, guys. So please keep them coming and we will send you a code for a free sticker. Woo! Woo! Gotta love a sticker. My two-year-old really loves stickers. So (laughs) have, (laughs) embrace the sticker. (laughs) Okay, Andy, we have a really compelling story this week. I used Above Suspicion by Joe Sharkey. It was incredibly written. He's the same one who wrote the source material for our John List episode. I thought that name sounded familiar. Yeah. Yeah. He has a third one too that I'm going to look to see if it can fit in the love murder milieu because he's an incredible writer who interviews literally hundreds, if not thousands of people to get like the deepest, dankest details (laughs) of the story. Dankest. (laughs) Dankest. Without further ado, let's jump right into this week. It was a drizzly, dark winter day as an Oldsmobile careened through hairpin turns on narrow mountain roads in the hills of rural Kentucky. It was February of 1987, and the car contained a small and beautiful family on their way to a new life and opportunity. Patriarch Mark was tall, dark, and handsome, a former college athlete who maintained his physique, with a meticulous commitment to working out. His wife, Kathy, was six months younger than him, both of them 27 years old in 1987. And Kathy was a beauty with a lovely head of curly brown hair and a winning smile. She had a strength of character that made her appear beyond reproach. But if you delve deeper, you'd see how warm and truly human she really was. And of course, little Danielle was only two, already chatty and having inherited her father's deep-set eyes and her mother's quick smile. Mark had just graduated from the 16-week training course at Quantico to become an FBI agent, fulfilling a lifelong dream. Now, with his girls in tow, he was being dispatched to his very first assignment, a small isolated post in Pikeville, a tiny town in Appalachia. It was an intimidating position for a newbie. Pikeville was only a two-agent office, a nearly three-hour drive from the regional office in Lexington, and even further from the FBI's main office in Louisville. He would have very little supervision. None of the guidance or mentorship he had hoped would accompany his first post, but it had its perks as well. A small office like Pikeville offered certain career opportunities for a rookie looking to make a name for himself. The area was rife with crime and mayhem, specifically bank robberies and drugs, and any big arrests would be credited to Mark and only Mark. If he did well, he could write his ticket to a better assignment in a big city of his choosing, and Mark was determined to do well. 
With a tireless work ethic, a dream job scored, and a gorgeous and supportive family, Mark knew his life was finally coming together. Little did he know that in a few short years, that family would lay destroyed and someone would be dead. Mark would never climb the ranks of the FBI like he dreamed, nor watch his little girl grow up. So what the hell happened? I don't like that. Well, it's not a happy story. This is a murder podcast, Andy. We get very few happy endings. It's true. To understand where we're going, we've got to go back to the beginning. (laughs) So before Kentucky and even before Mark, let's actually start with Mark's wife, Kathy. Oh, Little twist. Little twist. I find Kathy as a human being very compelling. Joe Sharkey obviously did. He spent a lot of time talking to her to write the book. And she has a very interesting backstory. So I'm very pleased to present Kathy to you. Kathy and her younger sister, Christine, were raised in an upper middle class, second generation Italian American family in Manchester, Connecticut. The household and the private Catholic school Kathy attended were strict, and Kathy often bristled against what she felt were arbitrary rules, eventually becoming a rebellious and unruly teen who dropped out of high school during her senior year, only days after her 18th birthday. Yikes. Yeah, Kathy horrified her parents when she moved in with her bad boy boyfriend in a rundown part of East Hartford getting a job as a waitress at a go-go dancing club. Whoa, that's a lot of, that's a lot of decisions. That's a whole, it's it a lot of decisions. You drop out of school, move in to a bad part of town with your deadbeat boyfriend and get a job at a go-go club. Uh-huh, yep. And her parents were definitely like upper middle class, very nice. Like, I think he was like a real estate developer. So this was like a huge turnaround for like a supposed nice girl, you know? Full 180. Yep, exactly. After her boyfriend was thrown into jail for assaulting a man (laughs) who had been flirting with her. Is that the same as the Nick Cage role from Con Air? (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like that, right? Any assault charge just always reminds me of that story. And that always reminds me of the story of the guy telling me that story at the bar. And I didn't, I hadn't seen the movie. So I was like, whoa, your life is so interesting. And he's like, it's actually a character from Con Air, Nick Cage. <laughs> that was Nathaniel. Nathaniel told me, he's like, that was just Nick Cage's storyline from Con Air. Just so you know. I was like, what? Pikachu face. <laughs> oh my God. Yep. So this guy's like flirting with her. He gets thrown into jail. He was helping her make money. So now she's kind of fending for herself and she gets a job at a massage parlor to make ends meet. Okay. So at this point, Kathy claims that she like naively did not know what was expected at this sort of establishment. She really thought you just gave massages. Well, yeah, normally you do. Normally, this is not a normal massage parlor. This is a happy ending place. And she says in the book that when a guy would suggest to her that he needed a happy ending, she'd be like, oh, no, you do that. That's fine. You do that. So the guy was like, okay. And I guess the worst she did was really like take her top off while giving them a massage. Would the guys have to pay extra for the happy ending? I don't really know the situation of this particular joint, but it was implied that you could do whatever you wanted, I think, with the women at this place. So she wasn't really good at this, and she didn't really want to be doing this. And within only a few days of working at this place, a regular client followed her home 
forced his way into her apartment and sexually assaulted her. Not okay. Definitely not okay. So obviously she's traumatized by this event and she does the very brave thing of going to the police to report it. But her pain was definitely compounded when the police did nothing to go after the man who raped her. Instead, they just used her statements to shut down the massage parlor. Wow. Yep. And the rapist totally got to go free. They weren't even interested. Way to protect and serve. But that just goes to show you that sex work is villainized. And, you know, so often when you are working in sex work and you report an assault, they do nothing about the person who assaulted you. And they do everything to shut down whatever the, you know, sex work operation is. So fucked up. Yeah. So, of course, she's terrified because the man was really angry that she reported him. And luckily, she hadn't been home that night. But he went back to her apartment with two friends and broke in and trashed the place. Wow. The cops wouldn't give a shit about that either. No. They did nothing to help her. So she's terrified. She ends up getting back together with an ex-boyfriend and the two move to North Carolina and they move into a trailer there and Kathy bartended and the boyfriend painted houses. But she was miserable and she was desperate to come home. I think at this point she was realizing she had made some mistakes and that she was willing to live under her father's roof with her father's rules again, you know? However, she needed money to get back up to Connecticut from North Carolina. So she sets up a hustle with her boyfriend. Like this is her plan. She's going to convince some young Marines from a nearby military base that she has some girls at a hotel ready to party if they fronted some cash. And then instead of taking them to the hotel, she would literally just take their cash and run into her boyfriend's waiting car so he could drive away with the cash. So dumb. So dumb. military people. Yeah. And... The first group of men she tries this on, there's an undercover cop in. So they catch her no problem. And they end up arresting her for prostitution, even though she's like, there never was any girls. Like, I was just trying to steal your money. And I don't know why, but they held her on prostitution instead of like, I don't know, theft. I don't know what it would be. Oh, my God. Yeah. So now she has to call her parents from jail and say she's been arrested for prostitution. Wow. Which is... Just, I can imagine the worst phone call that you ever want to make ever. Or receive. Or receive. Oh my God. Yeah. As a parent, no thank you. No thank you. Her parents bailed her out and she ended up returning to Connecticut. So back in Manchester, she meets a man 10 years older than her who had a steady job in a gravel factory and she married him like kind of on a whim. Okay. So too fast, too soon. And her father did give her a job managing an apartment complex he owned. And she also got her GED and enrolled in community college. So at this point, she's really working hard to turn her life around. Girl. And everything did seem like it was finally working out until her new husband ended up being violently jealous and horribly abusive. Oh, God. The marriage, which lasted only four months, ended one night when in a drunken rage, he smacked her around in the car and pushed her out, bruised, terrified, and half naked on her parents' lawn. Uh, what? Yeah. So Kathy divorced him, thank goodness, and held on to her career and college goals. By the age of 21, Kathy was finally on track and proving to be very resilient and very bright. So all of this happened before the girl was 21 years old. Yikes. That's a lot. I was just going to ask you when you were like halfway through how old she was when she like moved back with her parents. But 
that explains yeah, it. Yeah, this is going on only in three years. Everything I just talked about was like, it was only a few days after her 18th birthday that she dropped out. And by the time she got divorced, she was just 21. That is wild. Yeah. That is a wild life. So a little while after that, a chance meeting would change her life forever. So this is from Above Suspicion by Joe Sharkey. And this is about how she ended up meeting Mr. Soon-to-be FBI guy. In the apartment next door to her lived an avuncular, hard-drinking elderly man who had asked Kathy to join him for dinner at a local restaurant where a woman he was dating would be singing. At dinner, however, he drank so excessively that he was listing severely by the time the singer came on. Oh, God. At an adjacent table, I know this sounds like a nightmare, a sprightly middle-aged widow sitting with a male friend noticed Kathy's plight and caught her attention. Men, the older woman commiserated, rolling her eyes. <laughs> Kathy smiled back. What are you going to do with them? The woman looked Kathy over appraisingly and asked her a few tentative questions about her age and marital status. You know, she said, pulling her chair closer. My son would be perfect for you. He's a good looking guy. He just graduated from the University of Tampa and he's going to be an FBI agent. I can call him and ask him to come over. Sure, Kathy thought. Some guy sitting at home on a Friday night while his mother hustles dates for him. And what kind of guy wants to be an FBI agent anyway? But the woman was engagingly persistent. Come on, she said, getting up. Come on, we're going to go call him. Listen, we need to leave, Kathy protested, noticing that her companion's elbows were sliding off the table. I have to get him home. But the man got unsteadily to his feet and wobbled across the dance floor to join his friend, the singer, between sets, announcing that he was going home with her. On her way to the ladies' room, Kathy passed the older woman at the payphone. You've got to meet this girl, the woman was saying into the phone. She's beautiful. She grabbed Kathy by the elbow and thrust the receiver into her hand. Talk! Flustered, Kathy mumbled, Hello? There was an embarrassed laughter on the other end. A deep voice said, I have to apologize to you for my mother putting you on the spot. The woman is incorrigible. Kathy was intrigued by the sound of his voice. They talked for a while and seemed to have things in common. She liked his sense of humor. She heard herself saying, Well, why don't you come down here then if you want to talk? Would it be worth my while? He didn't sound arrogant, just assertive enough to be worth a look. Yeah, it would be worth it. 20 minutes later, a dark-haired young man with a flashing eyes and dazzling smile walked in. He shook her hand, held her chair, and made her laugh and treated her like the most important person in his life. By the end of the night, she was hopelessly in love. Stop. Matchmaker mom. Gotta love a matchmaker mom. I really do. Because I feel like 99% of the time, it's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> if your parents try to hook you up, absolutely not. But I think it's charming when it's the dude's mom and you're a girl. Of course. Kind of. of course. Yeah. It's really sweet. It's like you already have like buy-in with your mother-in-law yeah. if it like works out. And you have to know <laughs> that he has a good relationship with his mom. If Exactly. It's very endearing. And Mark's a really good looking guy. Like he is super duper cute. So I would have been pleased as well if I were her. And you know what? After everything she'd been through, I think Kathy deserved a little happiness, uh, don't you? Yeah. So when Mark met Kathy, he had been two months out from University of Tampa where he'd graduated with a criminology degree. He was about to begin work as a clerk in the FBI office in New Haven. Mark was one of three children born to blue collar parents who placed their children and their children's education first. Their father, Walter, always had two additional side hustle jobs, as well as his main job, which was driving a truck for Sears. Wow. Okay. Yeah, he was a very hard worker. And Mark was such a talented soccer player that he was offered a prestigious scholarship to a boarding school his freshman year of high school. 
His father insisted he accept, even though the scholarship covered most things, they would still have to pay an additional $1,000 a year, which was considerable stretch of their budget when you're, you know, working paycheck to paycheck, taking extra jobs on, you know? Yeah. But his father was really committed to Mark having the best in life. And he was like, we're going to make it work no matter what. Oh. So he graduated in 1978 and he enrolled at the University of Tampa and Mark and his father only grew closer when he was in college and Mark would frequently go out on the road with his truck driver father. And this is also from Above Suspicion, this story comes from, and it's just a very sweet representation of where Mark's values are and, you know, how he appreciated his father. On the road at night, we would come into a truck stop and my father pointed out many times where guys would come up and offer him like $20,000 or $30,000 for his load. You know, the deal was he could leave the truck, go in for a cup of coffee and come back and report the cargo was hijacked. Wow. He told me it would have been no skin off my teeth. And man, there were times when we really could have used that money. It was easy money, but it would have been wrong. And there's no two ways about it. You be honest in life, Mark. That's it. Mark never forgot. At the start of his sophomore year, he decided to major in criminology. In his earnest way, he told his father that he intended to become an FBI agent because he believed in what he had learned about honesty and justice, as corny as it might sound. My old man was the one person I knew I could talk to about the FBI and not get laughed at, Mark remembered. Why would people laugh at you? I don't know. Also, when she said before, like, who would want to become an FBI agent? I was like... A lot of people. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, like, if during, like, the 70s and the early 80s, was there a different opinion about FBI? Because it sounds pretty dope to me. Yeah, I guess they were, I don't know. It sounds like they were made fun of a lot. Yeah. During Mark's sophomore year, his father died of lung cancer. No. The broken relationship would leave him with a powerful, nearly overwhelming sense of incompleteness. At the funeral, he told his mother, if I could be half the man that he was, I will be happy. I'll have made it. Oh, no. Yeah. When he met Kathy in July of 1982, he fell in love with her at first sight. In only a few short weeks, the two moved in together in Middletown, New York, halfway between the FBI office and the law office Kathy worked at as a paralegal. In early 1984, the two eloped in New York City and became pregnant with Danielle shortly after. Danielle was born on New Year's Day of 1985. 18 months later, all of Mark's dreams came true when he was accepted into the FBI Academy training program to become a special agent. Moving to Pikeville to achieve Mark's dreams united the young family as never before. It would be the happiest the couple would ever be. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. It was like happiest? Mm-hmm. So Kathy and Mark bought a little house in Pikeville and Mark feverishly set to work to catch some bad guys and make a name for himself. In the 1980s in rural Kentucky, all the banks were mom and pops. And in places that, yeah, they were all independently owned at this point for the most part. And that's because they were operating in mostly poor coal mining towns that acted for the most part as a check cashing agency for welfare, for the coal miners union pension and for disability payments. There wasn't like a lot of big business going through these places. So security wasn't real tight, as you can imagine. So the area was hit hard by bank robbers. One such bandit was a man named Carl Edward Cat Eyes Lockhart. (laughs) That was his nickname. So Cat Eyes had apparently these stunning light green eyes that resembled a cat. Like Quincy. And that's why. Quincy has light green (laughs) eyes. 
He apparently had Quincy eyes, oh. so they called him cat eyes. <laughs> you're talking about a bank robber here, and you're going, oh. I mean, it's like bank robber, like even when you just said Band-Aid, it seems like so far away, doesn't it? It definitely does. I think that there's something about this area during this time that is still a little, because it's in Appalachia, it's in Kentucky, coal mining towns, it's rural. It seems like a place that would have this romantic. Old West. Yes, it's very Old West seeming, which is romantic. And also like, I don't know, I guess if you have a bank robber that doesn't kill anyone that just, you know, takes the money and leaves, you're kind of like, oh, that's not so bad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Cat Eyes had recently been paroled after serving a seven-year sentence for robbing banks, of course. (laughs) And a spate of robberies had occurred across independently owned banks in Kentucky and West Virginia using his motus operandi, his M.O. In the case that eventually put him away. Wait, are you going to tell me what his M.O. is? Oh, yeah. It's like sawed off shotguns and like ski masks. It's nothing specific. <laughs> it was just that they know he did it. <laughs> That's the way he not very original things. cat eyes. Yes. So in the case that did ultimately put him away, he had gotten away with $300,000 from a bank in Grundy, Virginia. Wow. A small town. Yeah. Which is a lot. That's a good haul for a tiny bank, yep. man. Which is a small town at a crossroads near the corner of the Appalachians where the borders of Virginia, Kentucky, and West Virginia touch. Cat Eyes was a legend in the Tug Valley, mostly for having spent that $300,000, all of it, in a wild three-month spree, driving through several southern states in a white Cadillac El Dorado with a friend. That's going through a hundred grand a month. Yeah, that's not really like playing it on the down low. No, the Desperado's odyssey had culminated in a truly epic week of debauchery and gambling in Nashville, where the boys dropped their last 50 grand before turning up frazzled and broke back home where they were promptly arrested. When they say the Desperado's odyssey, that's amazing. Did you write that or did he write that? <laughs> oh, no, that's Joe Sharkey. I, I cannot take credit for that. That's awesome. <laughs> Mr. Sharkey, I tip my hat to you. <laughs> So Mark set his sights on catching cat eyes in the act or preferably before it, but needed information. He befriended local law enforcement who pointed him in the direction of Kenneth Smith and his wife, Susan. Kenneth had been childhood friends with cat eyes and had invited him and his girlfriend, Sherry Justice, to move in with his family after cat eyes was released from prison. Sherry. I know. I know these names do not seem real. Oh my God. Cat eyes, Williams and his. Partner, Sherry Justice. Yeah, no, it's Cat Eyes Lockhart. Cat Eyes Lockhart and his main girl, Sherry Justice. Jesus, wow. You can't make this shit up. Also, this is taking place in 1987, too. It feels like it should be taking place in, like, 1922. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Kenneth and Susan had already divorced technically, but they were still, like, kind of back and forth together, and they lived together, they said, for the kids at this point. Okay. They also speculated that, like, Kenneth would sometimes deal drugs and it seems like Susan had some addiction issues. So it might've been like the drugs bringing her back into the relationship because, you know, he would provide them for her, you know? Yep. So their house had become somewhat of a social center for the downtrodden. Anyone was open to come over, like they could crack a beer, snort a bump, crash on the floor if they needed to. And Kenneth was chronically out of legitimate work and money. So Mark thought he might be amenable to making a little cash on the side by ratting out his old pal. Okay. So they know that this like bank robber is living with this guy. 
the guy might want some money. So he's going to like do an interview with him to see if he could be an informant. Okay. So local cop Bert Hatfield, which is actually, he's a descendant of like the Hatfield and the McCoys issue in that area. Have you ever heard of the the Hatfield and the McCoys? I don't think so. It's a historic feud in Appalachia where generations of these two families were fighting for years and people died. Wait, I think you've told me about this. Yeah, so I won't get into that whole history, but Bert was actually one of the Hatfields of those Hatfields. So Bert, he had lived in the area his whole life. Obviously, his family's from this area. He arranged a meeting because he knew also, like, he knew Susan and Kenneth personally. Okay. But Kenneth had a laundry list of demands. Like, he wanted a bunch of stuff that was just ridiculous. My boy, Kenneth. Yeah, Kenneth was like, he wanted, like, something. It wasn't like he wanted to not be on parole anymore, something he didn't want to be on, like, supervision. He wanted, like, crazy amounts of money. He wanted X, Y, and Z. They're like, okay, that's too much. And also his parole officer assured Mark that Kenneth was too unreliable and too untrustworthy to make a good informant. Not looking good. Not looking good. However, Kenneth's ex-wife, 25-year-old Susan Smith, might be exactly perfect for the role. She also lived with a bank robber. She had all the same CD connections. She was actually bright and reliable. And she had provided key information to local authorities in the past on the down low. So they knew that she was probably good for it. Yeah, but she's also a drug addict, right? Yeah. So Mark and Susan met a couple times to feel each other out. And she agreed that she would become an informant for him. Oh, great. To get paid, Susan would have to provide information first that would get her in the door. So basically the system is that you have to like give them some tip that looks good and then they'll give you the money afterwards. But then after that, they can like pay you up front. Okay. So they just have to like prove that you're cool. Yeah. So the first part is just proving that you're giving them good information and then like then you can kind of keep them on the roster. So Mark would be allotted $5,000 to be distributed at his own discretion And he could get more anytime he wanted. So he basically had a bottomless budget as far as paying for information. It's insane. Yep, definitely. Susan stood to gain thousands of dollars for cooperating if she could deliver the goods. So Mark and Susan began meeting two to three times a week to discuss her tips. And soon the money incentive took a backseat to another couple perks of the job. One was a feeling of importance and the other was the full attention of a handsome, well-intentioned young agent. For Susan, who had never felt important or seen in her entire young life, this was intoxicating. She's going to catch the feels yep. over here. Figured. Mm-hmm. So Susan was born in 1961 in Matawan, West Virginia, to a habitually out-of-work coal miner father and housekeeper mother, the middle child of nine children. Wow. Yeah, and she was like a true middle child. She was the fifth. I was going to say you're number five then. Uh Uh-huh. She was like the middle, middle child of so many kids. So intense. Yeah. The family was on welfare for almost the entirety of Susan's childhood, and the family struggled to feed and clothe their large brood, which was really embarrassing for Susan. Like, a lot of times she didn't have shoes. She would have to, like, share them with her siblings. Too many kids. who got to go to school is, like, who got to wear shoes that day, that sort of thing. Oh, God. Yeah. So Susan dropped out of school in seventh grade, stating to anyone who could be bothered to ask that she had, quote, better things to do than go to school. But she didn't. In 1977, 15-year-old Susan met 22-year-old Kenneth Smith, a good-looking charmer. No. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah, 15. He's 22. And he basically was on a motorcycle and he like 
pulled up beside her. She's a teenager. And he like wolf whistled at her. And he was like, hey, baby, you want to ride? And she just was like, sure. And got on the back of his bike. No. That's how it happened. No. Oh, God. Poor baby. Yeah. They like immediately after he picked her up, you know, she goes off with him. They start dating. They get really serious. And when Susan was 17, Kenneth was arrested for drug possession And while he was in prison, Susan had to fend for herself. So she waitressed, but she also turned to sex work to make ends meet. So it's really interesting because the two women that are, you know, important to Mark's life almost have a very similar story. Yep. They dropped out of school. They got mixed in with the wrong guy. That guy went to prison. They turned to sex work. Like, you know, it's it's really interesting to see where, like, Kathy and Susan seem very different at the outset of like, you know, their time in Pikeville. Like she is very well respected. She's an FBI agent's wife. She's put together and Susan's life is falling apart, but they have so many things in common. It's really interesting. Yep. Just the choice you make at a certain path. Exactly. 100%. So when Kenneth got out of jail, they moved to Indiana and they had a daughter named Miranda. And after the initial joys of new parenthood faded, the two began a cycle of drug use. Kenneth would lose a job, they would end up fighting, and then Kenneth would beat Susan. Ew. Yeah, and then he'd sober up, and he'd beg forgiveness, and Susan would forgive him, and it would start the whole cycle back again. So they moved briefly to Chicago, where they sold drugs, and then eventually back to Kentucky, where a second child, a son named Brady, was born in 1985. So Susan and Kenneth formally divorced after this. And the reason why anyone could really like figure out was because they stayed together was actually so Susan could collect better welfare benefits as a single mother of two. So they stayed living together even though they were legally divorced. It was in this position that the once bright and hopeful Susan, now vulnerable and beaten down by life, met FBI agent Mark Putnam, who offered her a way out and potentially so much more. So you can see, like, she was just looking for a better life. I mean, she didn't have, like, that turnaround that Kathy did, you know? She's, like, still in it, you know? Yeah. The big payoff came that September when Susan reported that Cat Eyes had brought home a duffel bag containing two sawed-off shotguns and some ski masks. Watch the papers, Cat had told her with a wink. Easy Street is just up the road. Mark gave this information to law enforcement who quietly alerted local banks to be on the lookout. On the morning of September 10th, Cat hit a bank in Elkhorn City. He held the bank up at gunpoint and demanded the teller fill a greasy pillowcase with money. Ew, why was it greasy? I don't know. That's what it was described as in the book. She said it had a weird filmy quality to it, like it had motor oil on it or something. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if that was part of the plan or like, like, you know, in the back of his car. (laughs) (laughs) I really love the details that stick with you sometimes. I would have never... I would have never predicted that greasy pillowcase would warrant a ew. <laughs> greasy pillowcase just does not sound good. Like I never want to hear greasy pillowcase ever again. <laughs> so yeah, while he wasn't looking, the clever bank employee snuck a dye pack in with the rest of the money. So I kind of knew what a dye pack was, but I didn't really know how it worked. Do you know how it works? I have no idea what a dye pack is. I'm thinking like okay, if you yeah. want to like tie-dye the pillowcase because it's greasy, you know, and you want to like <laughs> – Give it like a new look. Is it like that? No. No. She was like, I really want to jazz up this greasy pillowcase. That's why I'm going to sneak this dye pack in. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, is it something that explodes so that you know who stole the money? Yeah. 
Yes, so it's exactly. Kind of like, Bingo. It's kind of like a tie-dye kit. <laughs> it's like a really massive tie-dye kit. So a dye pack is a clever security device that looks like a standard bound stack of bank money, 100 bills thick, but with a real $10 bill on top of bill size so newsprint. So cool. It's so cool. So once the dye pack passes through an electronic beam at the bank's door, a timing switch is triggered. The next time it's jostled, the device explodes like a firecracker, splattering red dye on the fleeing culprit and his loot. So cool. So cool. So obviously, usually robbers look out for this. They know kind of what to look for, but she snuck one in. So he gets out the door with almost $13,000, but boom, off goes the dye pack and he's covered with red dye. And he said later that he thought he was shot at first because it's so loud. And then he was just covered with red. He's like, oh my God, I've been shot. I'm dying. (laughs) And it took him like a second to realize it was a dye pack. Oh my God. But he did manage to get away because there was an accomplice waiting in a getaway car. So he does get away, but he gets caught a week later when he tries to exchange some of the red tinged $2 bills at a different bank. Yeah. So with cat eyes caught and charged and a promise to testify at trial, Susan was given $4,000 and Mark had his first solid victory as a young agent. Yay, Mark. Yep. So he's real happy. Higher ups at the FBI encouraged Mark to keep Susan on as an informant as she appeared to have a great memory and a real pulse on the underbelly of rural Kentucky. Mark did so, but it came at a cost. Susan began calling Mark all day and night, doing nearly anything to catch and keep his attention. Her information also was becoming gradually less valuable as people stopped telling Susan things. I was going to ask. Well, Susan starts like bragging all over town that she was working for the FBI. So it's like kind of makes you not a great informant if everybody knows you're going to tell the FBI everything. Yeah. So Mark started dodging her calls and Kathy began a friendship with the wayward woman. So Kathy was lonely in the new town. And when Susan would call, obviously high on something, she wanted to help the slightly younger woman. She had a feeling of empathy and curiosity about Mark's informant. And that eventually morphed into like a real relationship. And the women occasionally spent hours on the phone together. So Kathy even shared her own checkered past with Susan. And it was kind of like what we're talking about. She's like, look, I went through some of the same stuff that you've been through. There's a way out of your abusive marriage. You know, you have to do the difficult part of like getting clean and making a better life for your kids. Like use that $4,000 to like get a new trailer, get something new, move to a different town. Like there's ways you can do it. It's not going to be easy, but like I did it and I believe you can do it, you know? But despite Kathy's good intentions, it became clear that the only direction Susan wanted to step in was the one that would bring her closer to Mark. To her husband. (laughs) To her husband. And I think that's also like Susan was just hearing like, my life sucked too, but then I landed Mark. So she's like, cool, I just get Mark. As the months went by, Susan would often pepper Kathy with questions about Mark's likes and dislikes, even changing her appearance to look more like Kathy. Ooh, single white female vibes. Yeah, she was like cut her hair in the style that Kathy wore her hair in. And she even attempted to curb her. She had like a a very Southern accent that she called a hillbilly accent into a flatter, more Connecticut way of speaking. Like she was trying to speak like Kathy even. Yeah. Around this time, Mark was cultivating another important relationship with a man named Charlie Trotter, who claimed to have information on a multi-million dollar multi-state chop shop operation. Wow. 
involving stolen vehicles, truck parts, as well as valuable construction and mining equipment. And he said he had information on who the dastardly head honcho of the grift was, Mr. Vernon Mullins. So Mark dug into this new juicy case and he had to juggle his informant's desires, including the increasingly needy Susans with his own family. Kathy became pregnant with her second child and she decided to return to Connecticut and her parents' home to have the baby. She would return north with Danielle several weeks before the due date, leaving Mark in Kentucky and then he would follow to be there from the time of like right before the due date through Christmas. Okay. Yeah, because the baby was due like the first or second week of December. Okay. Mark was happy to have some space to focus on his latest case. The raid on the Chop Shop operation had been successful insofar as they recovered $4 million in stolen property, but they hadn't been able to find Vernon Mullins to arrest him, and almost nightly vehicles and the like were being stolen out from under FBI custody. So people knew about the raid, and even though the FBI tried to, like, lock down the compound where the Chop Shop was, people were, like, stealing cars out of it all the time. Yeah. (laughs) Not only that, Charlie Trotter had been outed as evidenced by an attack on the man that left him with a knife carved X across his entire back, a symbol that revealed they knew he ratted. Wow. Yeah. So things are not looking good. Like this is not going as smoothly as the cat eyes bank robbery one went. The birth of his son, Mark Jr. in December of 1987, did little to qualm his anxiety over his cases, and Mark was eager to get back to work days after Christmas when the family returned to Kentucky. While working late, one late December evening, Susan showed up at the FBI office. Oh, God. She startled him with a kiss on the lips and said brightly, I got you a couple things for Christmas. I'm sorry I didn't wrap it up, but you know how it is. He was bewildered. Susan, don't buy me anything. She took out a pair of expensive running shoes and a Nike t-shirt and set them proudly on his desk. Well, you wear those ratty old sneakers all the time, and I think you could use these. Where's your Southern accent? Oh, <laughs> where? You want me to try? Where's your hillbilly accent? <laughs> okay. All right. So, guys, I'm going to read a selection from Joe Sharkey's book, Above Suspicion. And on Andy's request, I'm going to attempt a hillbilly accent. Take a big sip of that wine first. <laughs> I wish it was moonshine. (laughs) Okay, so she startled him with a kiss on the lips and said brightly, I got you a couple things for Christmas. I'm sorry I didn't wrap it up, but you know how it is. I think that's like a little more Texas than Hillbilly. It's fine. Okay, you guys are going to have to roll with this one, okay? He was bewildered. Susan, don't buy me anything. She took out a pair of expensive running shoes and a Nike t-shirt and set them proudly on his desk. Well... You wear those ratty old sneakers all the time. I think you could use these. I can't take these, Susan. Her face clouded like a scolded child. I will be very insulted if you don't take these. You've been very good to me this year. This is just between us. You know who you sound like? Who? Sookie. (laughs) It's a Sookie accent. true blood? Yeah, that's like a New Orleans or like Louisiana, Mississippi accent. But that's, I'll take it. I'll totally take it. You know, I'm getting, I'm getting in the region. You it's are. kind of regional, <laughs> closer. At least, you know, I thought it was Texas for a no, while. It's now not. I'm getting, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, not wanting to hurt her feelings, he muttered thanks clumsily. But as soon as she was gone, he got on the phone to Terry Hulse in Covington, who was his supervisor, and asked him for advice on what to do with a gift from an informant. 
Halls told him not to worry, just to write a memo about it and put the stuff in the safe. But he also wondered whether Mark was worried about more than a pair of sneakers and a shirt. Hey, is there anything going on with this girl, he asked. Mark considered his response for a moment before replying, Well, she has made her intentions known, if that's what you mean. His supervisor didn't seem overly concerned. Just be careful, Hulse told him, and do good work. See that she testifies. Ensuring that she testified was the main reason he had been going to the trouble of sustaining his relationship with Susan, who required high maintenance not only from him, but also from Kathy. Susan, he had come to believe over the fall, was a loose cannon. Uh, yeah. So Mark was forced to spend more time with Susan leading up to Cat Eyes's trial to prepare her testimony and make sure she showed up. And she became more and more forward during this time, suggesting to Mark that they should indulge in a quote, little fling, something totally harmless. Obviously at this point, like Mark doesn't tell anyone other than that one sentence that he's like, oh, she's made her intentions known. He is not letting anybody know that she's like actually coming on to him at this point. Okay. And it's, I think it's like on him that A, he should have set better boundaries. But also he felt like when he had kind of tried to report this type of behavior before, no one seemed to care. They were just like, make sure she testifies. Who cares? Yeah. So he doesn't really know what to do with that other than to like stay in her favor. Of you course. Know? Yeah. So his work did pay off when Susan came through valiantly in court and Cat Eyes was convicted and sent back to the state pen. And this was like a big deal. I mean, it was really tough for her to testify. I mean, she had to look at the people she's betrayed who lived in her house and like she ran with that kind of crowd. So she looked like a huge backstabber. Wow. Yeah. And she had to publicly get up there and testify against Yeah, him, that's you know? so scary really really scary i mean you're going against all like your husband all of your friends and they're all, all criminals of the people. yeah and they're all scary people that'll kick your ass yeah no thank you no thank you so that was like a brave thing that she did which is a good thing a few weeks after the trial mark received a new partner his name was ron Poole, and he was the opposite of mark in every way he was brash he was overweight he was slovenly he was 37 years old, and he was someone who played fast and loose with the rules. Mark took Poole as the perfect person to take over Susan as an informant as Poole specialized in drug busts, and Susan had a wealth of information in that department. Unfortunately, Susan wanted nothing to do with him on both a personal and professional level. Years later, Joe Sharkey would interview Bert Hatfield about the situation, and Bert would have this to say. Pool, that boy was a pussy hound first and foremost, and an FBI agent, maybe second. Pussy hound. <laughs> pussy hound. Wow. Being a big shot FBI guy, he managed to get plenty of women, but Susie would have nothing to do with him that way. She played him like a fiddle. Drove him nuts that he couldn't get into her pants. Oh my God. Yeah, Pool was a big piece of shit. Like it seems like he like pressured a lot of like women informants and like other people who worked for him that were women into like sex. It's really gross. So Poole is getting frustrated by constantly getting rebuffed by Susan and outshined by Mark. And he attempted to turn the tables on the handsome rookie by informing Kathy that Susan was definitely in love with Mark. And basically he reported to Kathy that Susan was insinuating to people that they were having an affair Okay. And that Mark was going to leave Kathy. So Poole's getting all up in this business for some reason. So 
Kathy was neither surprised nor amused. And she told Poole that she was well aware of Susan's feelings. And she was well aware of the rumors flying around. But truthfully, Kathy just felt bad for the woman. Like she didn't see her as a rival. She yeah. felt like pity for yeah. her, you yeah. know? She could understand why Susan had formed an attachment to her husband, but she trusted that Mark was too professional and too faithful to like ever fool around with Susan, yeah. you know? Yeah. As even more than just your marriage, she knows that this was his dream since he was a little boy. Was he really going to just throw that all away to have sex with this one woman, you know? Yeah. And part of what his dad told him was to be an honest person. And exactly yeah, that would and that was so important to him. on your wife. Yeah. And not doing it with somebody that is vulnerable and you're in a position of power over and you're giving money to. Yeah. Like it goes against everything. Yeah. Nonetheless, the rumors began to stress her out when she began to receive anonymous phone calls in the middle of the night claiming that Mark and Susan were sleeping together. Whoa. Yeah. So she would get like these random calls and they're just so you know, like your husband's with so and so. So her patience with the whole situation and with, like, talking to Susan on the phone for hours, like, this began to fray. She was like, I'm not really into this anymore. Kathy was at the end of her rope. Mark was overextended, and their marriage was suffering greatly. Later, Mark would tell Joe Sharkey the following. Man, I was starting to go over the edge. I was feeling sorry for Susan, but the truth is I was feeling sorry for myself, too. I knew the invitation was there with Susan. At home, things between Kathy and me were sporadic. We'd hook up. We wouldn't. I was always working. We weren't communicating at all. Kathy was miserable. I would come home from work and she'd be crying. And I just didn't want to hear it because I heard so much crying from people all day long. I just wanted to come home and relax without any problems. But there she was laying problems on me. I hate this place and these people. We've got to get out of here. You're working too much. You don't care about me. All you care about is that job. I'd go out for a run or I'd drive back to the office and I'd do paperwork until Kathy was asleep. I just abandoned her. Not healthy. Not healthy and not fair to Kathy. Like I no. understand he's under a lot of pressure, but that's really not fair. Meanwhile, Susan's calls to Kathy became more frantic. Kathy hardly even mentioned them to her husband anymore. Sometimes when they were together nights at home, the phone would ring. Mark and I would look at each other and I'd pick up. Sure enough, Kathy, is Mark there? And I'd say no. Susan's intrusions became so frequent that Kathy paid less attention even when they did speak. Wow. But she did listen raptly when Susan told her on one call how close she had become to her husband. I like to feel him near me, Susan said dreamily. Wow. She's telling this to the man's wife. Like, is she just that fucked up? Like, from drugs I and think stuff? There, or is she... There was some occasions where she was just that screwed up okay. that she didn't even try to hide it. So Kathy discounted it as a drug-induced fantasy, but still she warned Mark, don't you ever get involved with this woman. He looked insulted. She was furious at him for having the same naivete that she had once found so charming. You know what I'm saying, Mark. She will get pregnant and she will ruin you. Kathy, I'm not stupid. I love you, he said. We'll see how this goes. Uh-oh, no! <laughs> no! She like... You got to listen to the girl. You got to listen to your wife. Your wife knows. Your wife knows. Even when you don't want to, your wife knows. Amen. Amen to that. Also, Kathy, everything in her gut was saying, we have to get out of Kentucky. We have to get away from this assignment. We have to get out of this situation. Like she knew that it was not a good situation to be in. And also there was like other abuses of FBI power in this area. Like Kathy got involved in a cocaine scheme because some like, 
politician who they suspected to be involved in a cocaine drug ring like hit on her and they're like, okay, cool, let's just use you. And so she like scored some cocaine off of him. She's an FBI agent's wife. She's not trained to do this. Like they shouldn't be putting her in that situation. So a lot of stuff was going on at this point, even more than just Susan. And obviously that other informant, the guy who had been caught, he was calling them and he had kind of like ratted them out to the other side. He was kind of playing both sides. So these bad guys knew where they lived. I mean, this was getting to be a really dangerous situation for the Putnam family. It's messy as fuck. Yeah. So Kathy wanted fucking out of Kentucky. And Poole, Agent Poole at this time, he wanted his fellow agent and romantic rival out as well because like Mark was really good looking and obviously everyone was obsessed with him. And Poole was like this gross, like icky guy and nobody <laughs> liked him. And so he's like, maybe if this guy leaves, people will like me. Nope. It's like not, not, nope. not bloody likely. That's not no. how it works, dude. <laughs> So Poole started calling Kathy and being like, you've got to like push for a reassignment. And Mark had received threats from the fallout of the chop shop investigation. So there was enough to potentially warrant a transfer out of state for the safety of his family at this point. But Mark like was on the fence about whether he really wanted to do this. Like he definitely wanted to close all of his cases and he wanted to go out on like a really high note, not on I'm scared in this situation. I have to leave because my tail's between my legs. Yeah, I yeah, I understand that for a dude who works in the FBI. It basically got to a situation where they're fighting about this all of the time because Kathy at this point is like considering going above his head and going to his superiors and being like, we're in danger. You have to reassign him. You know, which is also not cool. Mm -mm. Like going to your spouse's work and doing something behind their back is not cool. So like they're arguing all the time at this point. Kathy is getting like increasingly desperate. And Mark was sick to death of fighting with Kathy like all the time. And he's also fighting with Susan, who is straight up refusing to work with Poole. Like he's trying to say, you work with him now. You guys meet, you tell him your information, you know? And she's like, no, I'm only going to talk to you. I'm not going to have this relationship with anyone else. So he's really getting frustrated. He's getting, getting it at work. He's getting it at home. So one late afternoon, Mark drove Susan into the hills north of Pikeville, and it was a quiet place that they often stopped oh, to talk. God. It was late afternoon, not quite dusk, and Mark struggled to keep his head in the game. Susan immediately knew something was wrong. He revealed his marital problems, and Susan said that she knew Kathy had told her over the phone. At this point, Mark later said that Susan began to rub his shoulders and console him. Mm -hmm. That's, like, hard to even do when you're in the car together. Like, what, you're like this? Yeah, you you have to be participating together. Yeah. It's not like you, somebody can, you know, he has to be like turning towards her because you can't really do it if somebody's not, you know. No, it's all, it's weird. Come on, guys. It's very weird. So she reminded him of how she felt about him and told him he deserved a release. And then. Oh, what kind of release? It's the kind that happens in the back room of massage parlors type of release. <laughs> So one thing led to another uh -huh. and the two end up having sex in his car. Hail as old as time. You dumbass, Mark. <laughs> you fucking dumbass. Just letting your dick control everything else. Just ruining your life one drop of semen at a time. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> you know what Nathaniel told me? He goes... You'd be amazed at how many lives would be intact if someone could just hold on to that moment, go to a private place, and furiously masturbate. 
He's like, if if we could all just, you know, no matter what we're feeling, no matter how desirous we are, just hold on really quick until you can get to a bathroom. But you seriously can't. jerk off. Yeah. And he goes, it just lives would be saved. Lives would be saved all over the place. Then we wouldn't have a podcast. Um, no, we would not have a podcast if people could keep it in their pants for sure. Oh man, that is for true. No matter how many times we tell these stories, people will continue to not keep it in their pants. Yep. Forever. They will be forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so much later when everything would be revealed, Susan would claim that the two had an ongoing love affair. So she says that this went on for months, that they were actually had feelings for each other. They talked about a future together. Mark would only admit to five times that he said happened like wham, bam, thank you, ma'am in his car. Five times is still a lot. That's just not like a one time fuck up. Yeah. Five times is still a lot. Oof. Yes. We may never know where the truth would actually lie, though, because soon one of these people will be murdered. I have a feeling I know who. who. Who do you think? I think it's Mark. (laughs) Okay, I'm not saying anything. So Mark claims he ended it after those five times. Well, Susan maintained that the two were in love and still planning a life together. On February 2nd of 1988, Kathy picked up an alarming phone call. So this conversation was detailed in Above Suspicion based on what Kathy told Joe Sharkey. Kathy, this is Kenneth. You listening? Do you know what's going on with your husband and Susan? He demanded. In the background, Susan cried, Kenneth, quit it. What's going on, Kenneth? Mark and Susan, that's what's going on. Been going on. They've been fucking in motel rooms. You think that's right? You care about that? Kenneth! Susan grabbed the phone crying, Kathy, I'm so sorry. There was a crash as something hit the wall. I'm so sorry, Kathy. Kenneth is just wild. You see, he found out, well, see, I was pregnant and I lost it, but he's saying that the baby was Mark's and I told him it weren't true. Kathy's a genius. Kathy's a genius. Kathy knows all, man. Listen to your wife. You know what I've been going through with him. He just doesn't understand that Mark and I, we have to meet sometimes in private places and all for work. There was a scuffle. She heard Kenneth. Your fucking work? Is that what you call it? Kenneth, no. Susan was tiny, but she knew how to fight. She managed to grab the phone as Kenneth screamed. Tell her if she wants to see the pictures I got of the two of you going to them motels. Kathy, I swear there ain't nothing going on with me and Mark. The phone dropped again and Susan yelled, fuck you, Kenneth. Now Kenneth was back. Is that all right with you, Kathy? Them fucking is all right with you? Wow. Listen. First of all, how could you not have read this in a Southern accent or a a hillbilly accent? (laughs) No, it's really, it's really rolling off the tongue now. I just have to get one. Okay. 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 (laughs) Yeah. This is turning from Quantico, the TV show into Jerry Springer. uh, Springer. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Straight up. Standing on the, on the chair. Is that all right with you? Is that all right with you, Kathy? Them fucking and all? Oh my God. So Mark gets out of bed at this point and he's standing beside Kathy who is sitting in the dark. Uh, Who is it? Mark said anxiously. Kenneth and Susan. Mark grabbed the phone. Kenneth, why don't you just calm down? Get your shit together, Kenneth. There's no point in raving over the phone. Okay, Kenneth? Kenneth suddenly hung up. So after the phone call, Kathy confronts Mark 
and he denies the affair emphatically. So again, he's saying, nope, this is just her imagination. This is Kenneth's imagination. I'm doing the flat mouth emoji. <laughs> yes, it's really good, actually. Thanks. That's a good flat mouth emoji. <laughs> At this point, though, he's like, you know what? Maybe getting out of town would be good for us. Maybe I should put in for a reassignment and you say think? that my life's being threatened. You yeah, think? he's like, this is getting pretty hairy. Kathy's losing her goddamn mind. <laughs> Obviously, Susan was pregnant at some point. This is a disaster. So after indictments were handed down in the chop shop case, Mark testified to the threats that were made against himself and his family, and he was awarded with a transfer to Miami. Kathy was relieved, and so was Mark. No more pool, no more small-town bullshit, and no more Susan. Their family would finally have a chance at happiness and peace. So soon after the move, Mark was still fielding calls from Agent Poole and Susan. Poole claimed that Susan was impossible to work with and begged Mark to intervene. And for Susan's part, she felt rejected and full of fury. How dare Mark use her and then just run away to play happy families in Florida? That's what happens when he's married and you sleep with him. Yeah, exactly. Things in Susan's life were deteriorating rapidly, and she moved in with her sister Shelby, leaving her kids at Kenneth's. She was routinely doing drugs and began to tell people that she was pregnant with Mark's baby, that he was going to leave Kathy, and that they would be raising the child together. She even went as far to tell people that they had picked out names and the names were Markella for a girl and Mark Jr. for a boy, even though Mark already had a son named Mark Jr. It's a good thing she's doing drugs while she's pregnant as well. Yeah, exactly. Wow. In early May, she filed assault charges against Kenneth, claiming that he had tied her up and dragged her through the house in West Virginia. Kenneth retaliated by reporting her to the West Virginia Welfare Office for receiving benefit checks from two states. Apparently, she was running a scam where she got welfare from both Kentucky and West Virginia. For their kids, though, right? For their kids. So he's like screwing over their own children because he's trying to get back at her. Susan needed more drugs to deal with her reality, but very few dealers were willing to sell to a known FBI informant. In desperation, she once again turned to sex work. This would be later corroborated by a motel clerk in Pikeville who witnessed her at work. Continuing her unlucky streak, Susan ran into Cat Eyes' girlfriend, Sherry Justice, who beat the shit out of her for double-crossing them. Like, in a bar. It was bad. Yikes. Bruised, bloodied, humiliated, and with nothing left to lose, Susan revealed to Ron Poole that she was pregnant with Mark's baby. He encouraged her to call Mark... And when she did, Mark was flabbergasted. He was due to return to Pikeville to prepare for the chop shop trial, and he would speak to her then. Poole pushed her to bring proof of her pregnancy to the meeting with Mark. On Tuesday, May 30th, Susan went to the public health center in Pikeville to have a pregnancy test and got a report confirming it. She explained to the physician that she needed the confirmation to apply for state welfare benefits, although in fact she was already receiving them. Based on what she said, the doctor who interviewed her gave her an estimated due date of November 19th, indicating that the date of conception had been near the end of February. The doctor also noted that Susan had had a miscarriage and a DNC on January 2nd. Susan took the report to Poole, who made a copy of it. That weekend, Susan visited her children at Kenneth's place. It was the last time that they would see her. On June 4th, Mark Putnam returned to Pikeville and was immediately forced to be face-to-face with an irate Susan. 
Behind Mark's back, Poole had arranged for Susan to stay at the very same motel that Mark was staying at for the duration of his visit back in Kentucky. What a tool. He's such a dick. This guy is just inserting himself in this situation and setting Mark up. Ew. Mm-hmm. So once Mark finally like got away and went back to the FBI office, Poole even managed to give him the doctor's form that reported a positive pregnancy test. He was like, hey, have you looked at this piece of paperwork? And like made Mark read it. So Mark refused to engage with Poole, who was so clearly looking for a reaction. So he just buried himself in trial prep in Lexington. Still, Susan knew where he was staying. And as soon as he crept in for the night, she would pounce. Like she would literally just wait outside watching for him to pull into the motel. So this went on for a few days. Mark returning bleary-eyed from a 12-hour day. Susan agitated on drugs and demanding an audience with Mark, demanding to be taken seriously, demanding to be seen the way she thought he saw her at the beginning. And the more Mark tried to give Susan the slip, the more enraged she became until one night she like cornered him and she was screaming about their baby and how she was having his baby. And she slapped him across the face. So he decided at this point he needed to take her for a drive because they were in the motel and like everyone in the motel could hear their business because like thin walls and she's like yelling at him. So he's like, let's go for a drive. Let's calm down and let's talk about it in the car, you know, because I don't want like everyone hearing our business here. Yeah. So as they drove down dark, twisting mountain roads, Mark tried to reason with her. She refused to get an abortion. And he said he did understand that. He was like, I understand that if that's against, you know, what you want to do with your life. If a paternity test does prove that I'm the father, though, I would be willing to take the baby to Florida and raise it with Kathy. What? Yeah, which, of course, was exactly the wrong thing. She wants to hear... I'm in love with you. I'm yep. coming back. We're going to raise this kid. And he's like, oh, I'm also going to take your baby and raise it with my wife. As the drive into the night went on, Susan became increasingly irate. So this portion is from Above Suspicion. You know, Joe Sharkey talked to the people involved in this conversation and really recreated exactly what was going on at least according to the person who survives the story. Okay. So I'm going to read almost verbatim what Joe Sharkey wrote, just because it was a great aside. Again and again, he asked her what she expected him to do. She was nearly hysterical, but when she managed to connect her sentences, they were mostly in the form of disjointed threats. He realized that she had been saving her emotional ammunition for him for weeks. He tried to reason with her. Well, with regard to a pregnancy, with regard to, what are you, a lawyer? She patted her belly. This baby is yours. Susan, we can discuss this calmly. Your FBI will be interested to hear what I have to say. So will that whore wife of yours and those kids. Oh, wow. She pointedly did not speak Kathy's name. She insisted that the baby was his and that she would tell the FBI, his wife, and his children about it. But unless it was to renounce everything else and stay with her forever, he could not figure out what she expected him to do. Ron says they'll fire you when they find out. He bristled at that. What about Ron, goddammit? She backed down. Nothing. He didn't say nothing. They'll fire you, though, Mr. FBI. <laughs> FBI. As they drove toward Freeburn and Baranchi Hollow, Susan sobbed uncontrollably. As they approached the crest of Peter Creek Mountain, she caught her breath and lunged across the seat at him, slapping him with both hands. Fighting to keep control of the car, he made out the contours of one of the coal road turnoffs in his headlights and turned abruptly onto it, bumping about 50 yards up the road and scattering gravel loudly under the car. 
He shut off the engine and the lights. Susan's sobs were the only sound in the darkness. Where the sky showed above the ridge, it was filled with stars. Mark rolled the window down and felt the air on his hot cheeks and burning eyes. He listened as if trying to extract from the gloom any sound other than Susan's short panting. Oh, God. Placing his hand on her shoulder, he said, let's try and work this out instead of acting like a couple idiots. This was exactly the kind of lonely, dark setting that had led to sex on other occasions. But even the intimation of affection now caused Susan to recoil in revulsion and slap his hand away. What's gotten into you, Susan? The question set her off again. What do you mean, me? You're messing with me, Mark. I know that now. I don't know why I didn't see it before. I'll be goddamned if I'm going to let you prance down to Florida with your little wife and your spoiled kids to resume your wonderful life. You owe me, buddy. Susan, I've given you everything I could. Leave Kathy and my kids out of this. She looked down with surprise. He realized he had been using his index finger to point at her chest for emphasis. You sure did give me everything you got, Susan said and patted her belly again. He studied her body, thinking again that she did not look pregnant, but not having any good recollection of how a woman is supposed to look at five months. And now I'm going to have a little Mark Jr., Susan went on, having regained her composure. I'm going to bring this baby down to Florida and knock on your door and put the little bastard right in your precious daughter's arms. Your son is going to want to know why the baby's name is Mark Jr., same as him. I can't wait to see the look in your wife's eyes. Wow. And then you know what I'm going to do? It's getting nasty. I'm going to go right down to your FBI Miami Vice office and tell your new friends how you solved your cases by fucking an informant and leaving her pregnant and barefoot to look after herself in Kentucky. I own you, Putnam. I own you and your precious job. Susan, just tell me what you want from me. From day one, all you've done is bitch and feel sorry for yourself. Now, please just tell me straight. What do you want from me? Now she was all business. We are going to have this baby. You will be there when it's born and sign the birth certificate as its daddy. Second, you will leave that whore Kathy and those spoiled kids and marry me. If you don't, I'll ruin your life. Looks like Susan's going to have to die. Uh-huh. Mark began to lose his temper. As Susan continued her verbal assault, she called him a pussy, a spoiled rich kid, that he was no man at all. She repeatedly called Kathy whore until Mark could no longer stand it. He told Susan that she was not to refer to Kathy that way. And if indeed Susan was pregnant with his baby, he would absolutely take the child to be raised by Kathy, who was a good mother. Not like Susan, who had given up custody of her two kids to an abusive alcoholic. Not like Susan with her drug use and her instability. So now he's like rubbing it in that Kathy's a good mom and she is not. Yeah, but... <laughs> I mean, they're both going for the jugular yeah. here. Yeah, And now it's going to start happening like literally. In humiliation, Susan attacked Mark, scratching and slapping at him as she cried. I won't let that whore raise my kids, Susan cried. She's a better mother than you'll ever be, Mark retorted, pushing her away roughly with an exaggerated show of personal disdain in the cramped confines of the car. This made her hysterical. She was on top of him, pounding down with her fists. He couldn't get his arms free to shield his face. Susan, cut the shit. He struggled into a dominant position, working to pin her arms. Her screaming horrified him. Fogged by their breath, the windows were as opaque as if covered by snow. You used me. You owe me, she protested. I paid you, he said with cruel sarcasm. You bastard, Susan screamed, flailing at him. I should have killed your kids. Whoa, me. Susan. Whoa. Takes Not a turn. Not cool. Not cool. With a guttural moan, she dug a long fingernail at his eye. Electrified by the sudden pain, he swung at her, this time with a fist and as hard as he could. But he missed. His hand slammed into metal on the dashboard. 
fuck you to hell, she cried as the punch flew past. Blood oozed from a gash across his knuckles. She saw the bleeding hand and bit it with her feet pressed stiffly against the windshield. The pain was astonishing. She hissed through her teeth. He needed quiet. He needed to think. Shut up, he thought, wrenching his hand free and grabbing her neck with both hands. He held her that way, pressing for silence for almost two minutes until her fury and his abated. He let out his breath steadily while she struggled weakly and then submitted to his will. Relax, Susan, relax, he said, almost as if he were giving her a massage. When his breath was fully exhaled, his grip relaxed. The tension drained from his arms, which fell heavily and painfully to his side. Susan was quiet. And dead? Yeah. Figured. For the first time since he had known her, Susan was quiet. He breathed it in, not willing to break the calm just yet. And finally, he said, Susan, are you going to take it easy now? When she didn't respond, he nudged her. As he pushed, she slumped over at a grotesquely unnatural angle. It was then that he realized he had just murdered Susan Smith, his prize informant and the alleged mother of his unborn child. Not a good look. Not a good look, buddy boy. Not a good look. This is because you could not keep it in your pants. No, he needed that release. He needed that release more than he needed to not take advantage of a vulnerable girl who's in a bad situation and ruin his family and his life. Yikes. Mark had robbed her of redemption. He had robbed her of the chance to turn her life around. And he had robbed her of the ability to give her children a good night kiss ever again. Susan's life was brutally stomped out at a dark roadside in a rental car, all because someone should have known better preyed on her at her most vulnerable. Mark Putnam, FBI special agent, was a murderer. Yikes. So in the moments directly after Mark realized he killed Susan, he thought of his options. He could drive directly to the state police and turn himself in, which would probably have been the best one. But he felt like it would destroy Kathy and the kids forever. And he didn't feel like he could do that to them. And it made his stomach sick. So he thought, like, one life was gone forever. Why ruin more? And he didn't believe anyone had seen him leave with Susan. So now he's thinking, maybe I could get away with it. So at this point, he also considers faking a car accident, but then realizes people don't get strangled in car accidents. Yeah, come on, dude. Yeah, that's not going to go over well. And he even considered suicide, and he might have actually gone through with it had he not left his gun at the motel. So he did none of these things. Instead, he gingerly lifted Susan's still warm body into the trunk where it remained until the next evening for an entire day while he drove back and forth to Lexington and woodenly participated in trial prep. Susan was in his car. That's disgusting. He felt like it was a bad dream. Like he was so out of it while this is happening that he like thinks that like he's going to open up his trunk and it'll be gone. Like she won't be there somehow. Like he's not dealing with reality. So that evening under the cover of darkness, he found an old rural coal road and he went a few miles down until he came to a ravine. He dragged her stiffening body about 15 feet below the roadbed. And then he just left her there, barely concealed, discarded like a bag of trash on the side of the road. Wow. The following day, people began to miss Susan. Ron Poole asked him, as did a local reporter who had heard the rumors about Susan's condition and the man who allegedly caused it. Mark steeled himself and he just continued to feign ignorance. Over the next few days, Susan's sister Shelby would file a missing persons report and it would land on the desk of a detective, Richard Ray. 
Though many in the town who knew Susan believed it was totally possible that she had just dipped, Susan was a wild child after all, Detective Ray thought that a missing woman who had alleged she was pregnant with a married FBI agent's child going missing from a hotel that that same FBI agent was staying at was super duper fishy. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, I don't care what people say about her drug use or about how she's not very reliable. This stinks to high heaven over here, you know? Yep. However, Susan had incurred the wrath of many with her informant work, not least of which was Cat Eyes and his girlfriend, Sherry, who had recently had an altercation with Susan. She was also heavily into drugs and had seedy connections there, a history of sporadic sex work, which also carries its own share of danger, and not to mention abusive ex-husband. So there's like a myriad amount of possibilities of who could have killed Susan because she had this rough life with all these different people that bore her ill will. But even then, he's like digging into it and his instincts are like, no, but I, I think it's this guy. So Ray managed to get one informal interview with Mark before he returned to Miami. After chasing down several of the other leads and speaking extensively to Kenneth, who was ultimately ruled out, Ray requested permission to travel to Miami and formally interview Mark. But initially it was denied. They were like, we all know Susan. We all know that she's just holed up somewhere doing drugs. Like she'll show up like. We're not going to give you the money to go to Miami to interview this guy when she's just going to show up in a couple weeks. Wow. So they were not taking it seriously. Meanwhile, in Miami, outwardly, Mark appeared to be doing a great job at his new office and his family was settling in spectacularly. Kathy was relieved beyond measure to have escaped Pikeville with her marriage intact, at least she thought. Yeah. And the kids were delighting with trips to the beach and the palm trees in their backyard. However, internally, Mark was experiencing some real telltale heart shit. He Uh. was convinced Susan's body would be discovered at any moment. So he's like reading several newspapers a day, trying to keep on top of it. Mark now experienced constant diarrhea and a nervous condition that caused him to drop nearly 30 pounds from his already athletic frame. Yeah, he's probably got like severe IBS from stress. Yep, exactly. Gross. He even went to his superior in Miami to see if he should involve himself in the missing person case. After all, she was his informant and he had been there when she disappeared. Mark would be more than willing to be interviewed or help no matter how he could. Some small part of him wanted to get caught or wanted to confess because waiting for the other shoe to drop was slowly driving him insane. However, the FBI didn't think it was his place to volunteer for follow-up interviews. They needed him in Miami to do his job. And besides, wasn't the woman a loose cannon? She could be somewhere on a drug binge. So nobody is taking this seriously because of Susan's background. Back in Kentucky, Ray pleaded with the prosecutor to put pressure on the FBI to cooperate with the investigation. After all, Susan had worked for them, putting herself in a lot of dangerous situations to score them connections. Didn't they have a responsibility to help find her? So, like, Ray's pushing hard on this. He's like, I don't like this. I don't like the fact that the FBI isn't even helping us when they used and abused her, you know? And tossed her out. Yep. Especially if their agents were involved either directly or indirectly. Shelby Ward, Susan's sister, also met with the prosecutor where she threatened to go to the media about what she felt was a law enforcement cover-up of her sister's murder. Shelby was quite serious about her threat and it had some weight. National tabloid television programs would quite probably be interested in the story, which had all the right ingredients. The poor coal miner's daughter, the dashing prep school FBI man, treachery, cover-up, intrigue, and of course, illicit sex. 
So finally, after extensive pressure from the state prosecutor who pulled strings for the U.S. attorney, the FBI began its own investigation into Susan Smith's disappearance. As the investigation warmed up, the agents were focused on Cat Eyes, Kenneth, and Mark, though only a slim minority really believed that Mark could possibly have anything to do with it. Mark was a rule-following family man, a poster boy for a healthy and competent agent. However, they all agreed it would be best to eliminate him early on from the suspect pool, and so they scheduled a formal interview. When the interview was set up, Mark drove out to a desolate area with his service weapon and considered suicide. In the end, he couldn't go through with it. Too many images of his devastated children danced through his mind. He decided to go forward and take his punishment as he deserved, which is not to say that he turned himself in. Oh, no. He went to that interview and lied his ass off badly. Stop. Oh, yeah. He tried to, like, still maintain that he had nothing to do with this. And he even made the cardinal error of referring to Susan in the past tense. Oh, no. I know. So they asked, how old is Susan? And he said she was 28. Wow. And the guy was like, Mark, you should know better than that. You're an FBI agent. Throughout the interview, Mark admitted that Susan had been in his rental car and that they had had a verbal agreement. However, he maintained he had dropped her off at the motel and not seen her again. He had a cockamamie story about how he had injured his hand, saying it had occurred in the garage of their Pikeville house while he was cleaning it out to sell it. The FBI had traced the rental car, which Mark had returned to the rental car company with a shattered windshield on the passenger side, a result of his struggle with Susan. Mark had claimed at the time a piece of coal had fallen off a truck in front of him and caused the damage. Now he changed the story and said he had kicked the window in frustration after injuring his hand, which was a story that made no sense because Mark couldn't even outline what position he was in in the car to make such a movement possible. I was going to say, would you do like a karate, like high kick into the window? Yeah, like they even asked him, they're like, can you show us how you did that kick in the car to create that damage? And he was like, um, I can't. Oh, my God. He's just doing a miserable job at this. Yeah, he is lying extremely poorly. At the end of the interview, Detective Ray, who was there, was proven correct. And now even Mark's colleagues at the FBI were pretty darn sure that Mark Putnam was guilty. So at this point, they asked Mark to consent to a lie detector test in Washington, D.C. the following day, and he agrees. And at this point, he really, really does know that he's a dead man walking. I mean, they are, they got him, you know? So that evening, he goes home to tell Kathy that he will be taking a lie detector test. And Kathy is irate on Mark's behalf. After everything they went through in Pikeville, she can't believe that they are interrogating Mark like he's a suspect. Like, she completely believes he's innocent 100%. She even goes to the FBI office to complain to the men running the investigation, saying, how dare you treat my husband like this? Wow. Yeah, she's still got his back. That has to feel so bad for him. Oh, yeah. He finally is like, I gotta fess up to her. So Mark flies to D.C. And while he's gone, it dawns on Kathy that, you know, Mark is acting really guilty and really weird. And like, he's definitely going to go to jail for this. And so she comes to the conclusion that he was actually having an affair with Susan. So she thinks that he's having the affair with Susan and he thinks that when the the affair is revealed that the murder is going to or the disappearance is going to get pinned on him. They still don't have a body. So they still don't know that Susan is actually dead. So she's like, 
she's probably somewhere doing drugs. And now my husband's going to like go to prison for her disappearance, even though all he did was have an affair with her. So she's like really pissed, but she's also really worried about Mark. And she's going through this like cycle of feelings. And that morning before the polygraph, Kathy begs Mark not to take it. Cause she's like, look, I think I know what happened here. And just because like you had an affair with her doesn't mean that you have to ruin your life. And if you get on that polygraph and you lie about having an affair, they're going to think you're guilty. So she's like, can you please just come home and we'll deal with this somehow. And he was like already on his way in. He's like, I can't stop it. I have to go in. My hands are tied. And so he goes into the polygraph and he totally bombs, of course. Yeah, he might be a a special agent, but he is like no 007 over here. He can't even get through a polygraph. He's sweating his dick off at this point, you know? So the FBI tells him what he already knew, that he failed. And at this point, they're like, Mark, give us a professional courtesy and just tell us what happened. Like, we'll treat you well. You know, we're not going to like put you somewhere where you don't want to be. But like, you have to just come clean to us. And he really wants to, but then he's like thinking about his wife and how she's going to find out about this. So he's like, yeah, but he should have thought about that before. Like, this isn't the time to be thinking about that. No. So he's like, can I go home and tell my wife and then I will go to the office in Miami and turn myself in? And they're like, yes. So they let him do this, which is hilarious because no other suspect is like, we're pretty sure you did it, but you could just leave and go home for a while. (laughs) Oh, my God. So they do agree to this and they also agree, obviously, they have to allow him to retain a lawyer. So he's going to go home, tell his wife and get a lawyer. So when Mark lands back in Miami, a very tense Kathy picks him up and they go to have an afternoon drink at the Holiday Inn. It's there that Mark tearfully confesses to Kathy that not only did he have an affair with Susan, but he also killed her. And was she pregnant? So she was definitely pregnant based on that form that she had from the health center that said she was, she had a positive pregnancy test. Yeah. We don't know if it was Mark's. And by the time, because this went on for like months, I think it was like somewhere between like 10 months from when he actually killed her to when he confesses. Wow. And so this was going on for a long time. I think by the time that they found her body, it was too decomposed to do any sort of genetic testing yeah exactly okay so of course kathy's in shock she's angry she's sad she's numb i mean how would you even begin to wrap your head around the fact that your husband's a murderer no you couldn't do it and so they go home where they inform kathy's sister chris who was staying with them they also tell kathy's parents who fly down to be with the kids and mark's mom after that they hire an attorney and a child psychologist to attempt to help them break down the news to their children that daddy did a real bad thing and he won't be able to see them for a little while a little while A long time buddy oh my gosh can you imagine having to tell your children you killed someone no Mark doesn't want to go to trial. He urges his attorney to let him confess. The attorney approaches the Pikesville prosecutor to make a plea deal. And this is actually a much better deal for the prosecutor than the defense because both attorneys know that the state has no real actual evidence. There are no witnesses to Susan leaving with Mark that night. There's no witnesses to the actual murder. And there's no witnesses to the body dump. No one saw him. They also have no body. We know that that makes it very hard to prosecute with no corpse. Yeah, he's got a lot working in his favor. 
Yep. And even though there was a report that the windshield in the rental car had cracked, by the time the FBI chases down the car, the windshield had long been replaced and it had been meticulously cleaned several times over and eventually was even sold. So there's no evidence left in the rental car. Yeah. They've got nothing. So all they have is motive and opportunity, but that's there's no way that that's going to fly. But what happens if you already confess? Like he already confessed. He didn't really, though. Okay. Like, he was kind of, like, off the record. Like, he failed a polygraph, but that's inadmissible in court. Okay. And then they were kind of like, Mark, we know. And he was just like, can I just talk to my wife? He didn't necessarily say, yes, I okay. did it. Okay. Beyond even that, Susan's family would like to lay her to rest, and only one person knows where they're going to find her. So it's advantageous for both sides to make a deal. Okay. After two weeks of negotiations, the prosecution and Mark's attorneys make a deal. He will plead guilty to manslaughter in the first degree. And in this case, I do have to agree. They basically say that the definition of manslaughter is that they were trying to hurt somebody but not necessarily kill them. And they killed them. Or they did kill them, but it was during a heightened emotional state. You yeah, know? no, absolutely 100% exactly what that is. I don't necessarily yep. think that he was trying to kill her in this situation either. No, because think about it. He left his gun yep. at the motel. It was not premeditated uh-uh. at all. He, it would have been much cleaner to just shoot her, you know? Yeah. So Mark pleads guilty and in exchange for leading authorities to Susan's body, he gets 16 years in a federal facility instead of a local Kentucky state pen. When Shelby and the rest of Susan's family find out about this, they are incensed. It is their belief that this is just law enforcement protecting one of its own. So they alert the media and much hay is made out of the fact that he only got 16 years. Eventually, a grand jury is called to decide whether the plea agreement should be upheld and it is decided that it should be accepted and ratified. Basically, the judge agrees with the prosecution that there's no real evidence that would point to a legal crime. The only real evidence is coming from Mark himself. So before he is sent away, Mark leads the police to Susan's body and she is finally officially laid to rest. Huh. It's a very unique love murder trial and closure. Yeah, it happened quickly. There was obviously a big outcry in the community about it, but it was kind of tied up quickly. I mean, when you have the murderer cooperating... It's a different set of circumstances, you know? And yeah. he he wasn't even really trying to fight that much for his time off. Like, his attorney was like, you could fight for less time. And he was like, I just want to be punished for what I did, you know? Okay. So Mark began his prison stint in Otisville, New York, and eventually was transferred to Rochester, Minnesota, where he would ultimately conclude his sentence. Kathy remained loyal to Mark and for three years lived in Minnesota with the kids so they could be close to him. Eventually, her mental health deteriorated, so she moved back to Manchester, Connecticut, so her parents could help her out. To add a tragedy cherry to this god-awful Sunday, on February 5th, 1998, Kathy was found dead at home by their 13-year-old daughter, Danielle. Oh, no, suicide? It was a heart attack brought on by organ failure due to alcoholism. She had drank herself to death. Whoa. Yeah, it's super sad. So Joe Sharkey wrote Mark a condolence letter because he had been interviewing all these people like this whole time. And so he got actually really close to both Mark and to Kathy. And so while Mark's still in prison in 1998, Mark answered Joe Sharkey's letter with a long reply in which he discussed his anguish about his wife's emotional distress. 
He wrote, Joe, she couldn't shake the deep depression which engulfed her, nor would she accept the fact that she had a problem. Over the years, her condition deteriorated to the point where suicide was a common theme to her nightly calls. No matter what the family and I attempted to do, she shut us out. Her condition was exacerbated by the fact that she was drinking heavily. Unfortunately, the kids bore the brunt of her capriciousness. It got to the point where she wouldn't let me talk to the kids alone and wouldn't allow Ray and Carol to see them, he wrote, referring to Kathy's parents. His letter, several months after her death, added, The kids and I have indeed grown closer as a result of our loss and have a steely determination to succeed. Wow. His language is... Poor children. I know, very eloquent. So Danielle and Mark Jr. stayed with Kathy's parents until Mark's release from prison in 2000. Mark would end up serving only 10 years, having had his sentence reduced for good behavior. I figured. He was one of them. I mean, he was an FBI agent. He didn't make any problems in prison. And it's surprising, but 10 years, like even if it was an accidental murder, that's somebody's life. I know. You take away somebody's life and you only get 10 years? I know. I don't know. I don't know about that. It's that's a tough pill to swallow. It's you better know? than get, having the force cover it up like they do other stuff. Exactly. At least and this is, I think, as far as I know, and I think Joe Sharkey said, it's the only known case of an FBI agent being convicted of murder. Like, come on. Right? That's definitely, these people be killing everybody out there. So yeah, he only got 10 years. And in some ways, I'm glad that his kids got a parent back. Me too. You know, because they were the ones really suffering in this situation. And it looks like he remarried and he moved to Georgia with the kids. And according to Wikipedia, he now works as a personal trainer. Oh, yeah. So he's out there living his life. Sadly, Susan's kids didn't fare as well. Her son Brady died several years ago due to overdosing on a combination of meth and Xanax. Oh, my God. Uh, So hopefully Miranda is doing much better. Joe Sharkey reported that she still lives in Kentucky with a child of her own now, and Kenneth reportedly lives nearby. That's good. Bert Hatfield had this to say about Susan. That girl was just likable. She was so convincing, no matter what bullshit she was talking. Her personality was just that good. People liked her, me included. But Susie always wanted more out of life than she was able to get. She didn't know how to go about it, even when the answers were so clear. Thanks, Bert. In 2016, production began on a film adaptation of Joe Sharkey's book, starring Amelia Clark as Susan. Jack Houston as Mark. I didn't really know who he was, but apparently he played Richard Harrow in Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, I don't know. And Johnny Knoxville as Cash, a.k.a. Kenneth, and they renamed him as Cash. Okay. So Joe Sharkey recounts an experience he had on set here. One afternoon during the filming of Above Suspicion, Amelia spoke passionately about her desire to bring Susan to life and capture the sad utility of her dreams. She told me she had read everything she could get her hands on about Susan. In fact, she already had worn out two copies of Above Suspicion. They're all dog-eared and I've scrawled all over them, she said. On location, she devoured my background notes and lengthy transcripts from tapes of Kathy and Mark's reflections on Susan compiled 25 years before. As we spoke, Amelia switched effortlessly between her native British accent and the Eastern Kentucky hillbilly twang that she'd been perfecting for months. When she did the final take, bathed in ethereal blue light as Philip Noyce softly called action and repeated those last sad lines about the death of dreams, I realized that in a way that written words alone did not adequately achieve, this young actress had worked magic and brought forth a vision that I recognized as Susan Smith. 
And I thought that was just so poignant and sad that a woman who wanted so badly to get out of Kentucky and become someone would ultimately be played by one of the world's most famous actresses and her story be told everywhere in the world. And it had to happen like this, that she had to die to get out of Kentucky. I feel like that happens all the time. It's like the story doesn't exist until it exists. And sometimes it unfortunately, yeah. The movie is out now. Apparently it was released in the UK or something like back in 2019. For some reason, it was only just released on Friday in the United States. It is streaming. Isn't that crazy timing? So it is streaming. I, I actually watched it on Friday night when it came out on Amazon Prime. And Amelia Clark does a great job. Johnny Knoxville plays like a hillbilly, which is not too far from, (laughs) I think, his characters. And it is a really depressing movie. It is deeply depressing as this story is. So if you're interested in how Amelia Clark's hillbilly accent is, I would say check it out. But yeah, it's, it's not an uplifting story. In conclusion, guys, listen to your wives, especially when they're talking about women trying to get in your pants, man. Like... Just trust their gut instincts, honestly. Also, it's probably a good idea if you're an FBI agent to not have sex with your informant, no matter how bad you need a release. Oh, 100%. Guys, just take a walk. Take Take a walk, walk, take a cold shower, do a little J-O, whatever you need to do. Do what you need to make it happen, whatever it takes. Yeah, don't do that. Don't Don't, don't bang your informant, Yep. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Okay, thank you guys so much for listening. Bye. Bye.